Hey there, and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling, and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan, and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton, and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging, and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. To our second or part two, part two, week part one, two week one of our podcast um, of Pastor Rowan's podcast, where we're discussing the Bible plan uh, for the church. Hey, and if you got through the first podcast with us jumping all over the place, well, and you're still here, well done. Well done, congratulations. <laughs> we have fine tuned, haven't we? we? You were attempting to fine tune. We realised we've gone, we went off script, and but that's okay because there is so much to talk yeah, about. Yeah, that's right. But I want to thank you for listening to us again, yeah, and welcome. hopefully we can. Uh, oh, thank you, you Rowan, for speaking, and thank you everybody oh, for thank listening. Thank you, Jenny, for your questions. My questions. I had a lot of questions which I didn't get to. So this time we're going to try and stick more to the actual chapters. Sure, so we'll see how we go. That That's our intention, reading. folks. That's our intention. Whether that happens, because I'm a man who likes to go off on tangents all the time. That's yes. how I study. We shall That's, see. Well, I go off on tangents too. That's the problem with two of us, maybe. But uh, this is designed to discuss the word that we're reading and just a conversational nature. When we read the Bible and we go, wait, what? Wait, hang on a minute. That sounds like something from ChatGTP. Do you want to explain sure, what you just said we could do there, that. We were looking for a name for this podcast. Um, and I was thinking of names like complicated stuff or confusing Bible stuff. The stuff that when you read it, you go, that doesn't make sense. And so we threw that into ChatGPT and said, we've got a podcast. We're addressing names. And it gave us, I said, give us a list of names for the podcast. And that was the one that stuck out to you, Jeannie. That's correct. It's, it's so it might not look right on paper, but the intention is the Bible. Wait. What? So, wait. Let me get this straight. It's the Bible. Wait, what? That's exactly it. All right. What are you <laughs> listening to? The Bible. Wait, what? Yeah, so that's it. You hear it now. That's our official that's name. That's our official name. It's the Bible. Wait, what? Now, I would never have thought of that. That was GPT that thought of that. Yeah, so we give all credit to the, the AI brains. The AI. Yeah, our, yeah. <laughs> our overlords. Oh, dear. But I had a, a great time speaking to you last time, Rowan, and uh, I'll try my best to keep it on track. Sure. 
Well, I will try to. I'll try my best to keep you. Keep me on track, Jeannie. Keep you on track. And so uh, in our previous podcast, we discussed uh, John 3, Genesis 1 and 2, sort of, Matthew 3. At least that's sort of what we got. That was kind of where we were going, wasn't it? With a lot of conversation about other things. Yeah. So today we're going to discuss Exodus 3, John. I I should add that. You know, we did go off on a tangent at the beginning too, but we were talking about the Bible as a whole and that and the story and the narrative of the Bible. So that kind of required us to go a little bit off script in That's order right. to get that yeah. whole picture. But we will be trying to s- stick to yeah. as best as we can to the chapters. And but we were just setting up what we're doing. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, we're fumbling through it. Exactly, we're we figuring go. it as we go. Yes. Uh, so thankfully today we have a good book to read. Yes. Uh, I'm going to read some of the verses uh, sure. that we're going through uh, because... I know if I was reading this in my Connect group, we would get stuck on a lot of things. Yeah, yeah. So um, Exodus 35, John 20, Numbers 27, John 14. That's what we're going to go for. Judges sure. 14, John 15. Okay. Now, if we um, do or don't get through this, uh, I apologize, but we will we'll try That's our best. intention. That's yes. our plan to try and smash out these chapters All with right. some thoughts. Okay, so I'm going to start just reading a little bit of John 35. Sure. Exodus 35. Exodus 35. Oh, my goodness. See, I'm, I'm already getting it wrong. So here we go. Exodus 35, then Moses called together the whole community of Israel and told them, these are the instructions the Lord has commanded you to follow. You have six days each week for your ordinary day, ordinary work, but the seventh day must be a whole, a Sabbath day of complete rest, a holy day dedicated to the Lord. I'm going to skip through to, wait, hang on, let's just stop there. What is the Sabbath why do we have to work for six days and then stop on the seventh day? Okay. Why is it holy? Why is it holy? I think other than we probably could develop a whole theology over a whole podcast or even a podcast series. I remember the Bible Project did a whole podcast series on the Sabbath. Um, for whatever reason, the seventh day is regarded as a holy. So the, the number seven has become known as the number of completion. So we talked last episode about understanding ancient thinking. So to the ancients, the ancient Hebrews, the number seven was the number of completion. Something was full when it was seven. Um, I don't have all the notes in front of me as to why that was the case, but that was the case. And it's so a perfect number. The perfect right? number. The number of completion is probably the best way to put it. Once you get to seven, it's complete. It's whole. It's fulfilled its purpose. Uh, and so... Uh, we have the the creation narrative of Genesis 1 that God created the earth in six days and on the seventh day he rested. And so that becomes a a narrative that is picked up through this concept of Sabbath or Shabbat, as the Hebrews would say, this concept of seven, the completion. And because God wanted his people to rest on that day, it became... um, it became something he, he commanded his people to do, but n- because really it was a, a way of helping them to rely upon him. Uh, if you think about it purely at a, uh, at a business level, if you work seven days a week, you are, at a natural level, if you work seven days a week as opposed to five or six, you have an extra day to make wealth, to generate wealth. So by having a Sabbath rest, it's this sense of, I trust that God is my provider and I'm not. 
Deuteronomy 6 something says, it is God who gives us the power to get wealth. And God was trying to institute into his people, this is Exodus, this is a book of Exodus, at the early stages of the people of Israel. Remember, they've been in slavery. They've come out of Egypt. And when you're in slavery, how many days a week do you work? Uh, that would be every day. Every day. Yeah. Every night? Every day, every night. There was the sense of you had to work. So when when God is instituting these new guidelines and principles for his people, he's setting up a different standard and saying, it's not like that. You don't have to work for slight. I'm not like Pharaoh who made you work seven days a week. In fact, I care for you. I want you. I know what's best for you. What's best for you is that you take space. You take a Sabbath rest. Do you think that would have been hard for them? They're used to working all this time. It's a mindset shift change. Would it be sort of revolutionary almost? I would think so. You have to do nothing. Yes, yes. You've lived all this life slaving and now do nothing. Yes, I think it would be revolutionary. While you're doing nothing, what are you meant to do? So it's a sense of this is the purpose of the Sabbath is to rely upon the creator, God, Yahweh, as your provider, as the object of your worship, that your best life is lived with him. So that it developed into this uh, practice that you would use Shabbat to worship. So Jews today still go to synagogue on Shabbat. We as Christians generally go to church services on a Sunday, which is the uh, Christian Historically, has been the Christian Sabbath because it was the resurrection day. So from the earliest right. times in Christian history, they moved Sabbath from Sunday, sundown Friday night through to sundown Saturday night. They moved it to Sunday morning through to Sunday night. So that was the traditional translation of that practice. But it was still there as this sense of it's a time to honour God, thank God, fellowship with him, relate to one another in his presence, build community uh, and involve him in your world and see him as your provider, your protector, uh, your creator. Does this mean for the other six days we don't think of God? Oh, good question. I, I don't think that's what God's intention is. It's just simply to be a reminder. It's like a reboot, a reset to keep us uh, thinking about the fact that we, if, if every seven days we are resting, not only is there a physical benefit and, and an emotional benefit to that, there's also a spiritual benefit in that it's a reset once a week back to what really counts. So if we have gotten off on a tangent and we've, we've stressed or we've started to, I know for me, I can easily fall into the trap of, of making it about me or feeling like it's all dependent upon me and to take that time out to just Shabbat and just rest and stop and just go, this is, this is you, Lord, mm-hmm. can actually be a really good thing. I know for me, I benefit from doing that. And we also been, we've also been reading Genesis 1 and we know that Gen- uh, God rested on the seventh day. He stopped. Sure. Did he need to rest? Well, I think the, the God of the Bible that is revealed would indicate there is absolutely no need for God to rest. In fact, Jesus says this. He says, my father is always working. So <clears throat> when he's teaching about the Sabbath, my father is always working and I'm always working, he said. So there's this sense that God doesn't need to rest, but that he rested in completion. He, he looked at his work six days. He created humans and he said, it's very good. It's complete. Creation is complete. And now... I can rest. And that resting in Genesis 1 uh, is, is temple talk. When they would build a temple, they would build it in seven stages. The ancient Near East would build it in seven stages. And on the seventh, seventh stage was the, the image. They would place the image inside that temple and the, and the God would come to rest 
in that temple. The idol would be placed in there. And that's the language that the Genesis 1 account, we didn't talk about it, but that's the language that, that the writers are referring to. There's this sense in which God is creating a temple for himself, Eden, the, on the earth, seven days. And then at the, end, on the, on the end of it, the image is placed in the side of the temple. That image is not an idol. That image is humans. We are created in the image of God. And so the image is that the humans come to rest in that place. So God doesn't need to rest, mm. but he wants us to be at rest. The, so say that again, human were coming to rest. What did you say? That? Uh, there's a... Remember, Sabbath seven is completion. Yes. We are the fulfillment of God's, we're the pinnacle of God's creation. No, just that last bit. Humans are coming to a place of rest. Yes. So, now I know that other verses say that Jesus is my rest. Yes. When God is setting up the Sabbath, is he sort of pointing to Jesus being the ultimate Sabbath, the ultimate rest? I think so. I I think that would, to say he was pointing to it, I'd say yes, but they wouldn't have been able to articulate that when they were first reading it. In fact, the book of Hebrews comments back on this whole concept that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. That might be what you're referring to, um, that there remains a rest for the people of God. Um, And so I think while they might not have been able to articulate when it was written initially that that was the intention of the Sabbath, I think as, as the scholars and the the people who've written and reflected back and the, and the temple, second temple scholars reflected on this and developed their theology over time, I think they would have seen it and gone, oh, that whole concept of rest from ma- mankind, humankind's struggles to make it in this world, that comes through Jesus. He has, he has given us rest from that striving and struggling. We can rest in him and know that he provides for us and he has provided a way for us. Is that too deep? Oh, no. No, no, no. Because I was, I was thinking even deeper. <laughs> you were thinking even deeper <laughs> than that. It's not possible for me. But when, <laughs> I, when I see when God, he set up the, sa- the Sabbath day. And here in Exodus 35, he's got these instructions that he builds the temple. Uh, it is the, temp- the tabernacle. The tabernacle. Right? Sorry, yep. the offerings for the tabernacle. Is it wrong for me to read it? Uh, thinking that that is all, like I said before, pointing to Christ. Should I just read this text as it is? Or should I go back and say, look, uh, God is creating this rest. And then the Bible sort of reveals itself. And at the end, do I then come to the conclusion? Or is it wrong to come to the conclusion that, oh, Jesus is that rest. Uh, So from the the beginning, he's intending, God is intending this rest. Yes. And now through all this study and conversation and things, we find out Jesus is the rest. Yes. That's not wrong. That's actually No, that's actually good theology. Um, Just remember that that we have the benefit of hindsight looking back. Yes, we do. So the New Testament, sorry, the, the, the writers in the Old Testament times, they were looking forward and figuring it out as they went. So if you were to ask uh, any, if you were to ask any regular Israelite who's reading Exodus 35 and building a tabernacle, which is a tent, tent of meeting, a place where it's actually Eden. You've got to think Eden language all the time. Eden on the mountain, the tabernacle is Eden. In fact, it's all the tabernacle, all the stuff you'll read in Exodus 35 is all Eden language. There is animals and and all the decorations it's all eden trees and palm trees it's all eden language so it's supposed to be the tabernacle is supposed to be another uh, um, rendition of eden on earth 
And they, they, if you said to the average Israelite, oh, you know, there's going to be one 1,400 years from now, there's going to be this, this man called Jesus and he's going to be the fulfillment of the tabernacle. They wouldn't have been thinking that way. But over time, they did that. The New Testament writers came along and they reflected backwards and they saw retrospectively, oh, that was actually Jesus. He, all that was pointing to Jesus. So that, that we have that benefit of living this side of the cross. We can look back and go, oh, that's, that's how Jesus was. And John does this. So the Gospel of John is full of tabernacle language about Jesus. All the I am statements. I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the way. I am the gate. I am the door. All of that I am language is actually tabernacle language tabernacle. taken from Isaiah, from Exodus 35 and all the places where the tabernacle was, which is to say Jesus was the fulfillment of everything that the tabernacle represented. I had heard that, but I had failed to understand that in this reading. Um, you probably need more than just this reading alone to yes. see that. So I should read and reread and reread, reread yes. things to get to. Yeah, and if you're reading Exodus 30, I mean, you're doing a Bible plan today and you're just reading Exodus 35, that's fine. And yeah. I, the reason we picked it is because it mentions the Spirit of God a little later on. But if that intrigues you and you go, oh, what's the tabernacle about? Grab a commentary, start reading. Start studying what the tabernacle is. Ask GPT questions, Google questions. Don't, ex don't just listen to everything it says. You've got to weigh it up, but it gives you some good pointers. So study and you'll discover over time more about this tabernacle concept and how Jesus is it. John chapter 1 says, we've got John chapter 1 on our list. No, John chapter 1 says, The word became flesh and tabernacled among us, dwelt among us. The term is tabernacled. John is wanting, there's no doubt in, in any scholar's mind that when the gospel of John, John was writing the gospel, he was wanting to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament tabernacle, Eden on earth. And so Exodus 35 that we're reading, this is about the details of um, the offerings that were needed to build the tabernacle. Yep. Tabernacle being the place of worship, yep. right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yep. yep. Okay. I'm tracking with and you. It's quite, it's very detailed. It is. Uh, you know, acacia wood, gold, silver and bronze, fragrance and all sorts of things, which is, is hard to read really. Uh, but what I really noticed this time is verse 10, come all of you who are gifted craftsmen, construct everything that the Lord has commanded. Mm -hmm. So God has commanded this to be made with all of these beautiful things. And if you're saying that in John, what was it, John? John all over John, John all 1 was it? John, the tabernacle yeah, bit? Pointing back pointing to back the to specifics yes, of this. All over John. Oh, that's just so bizarre. There's so much in this. Okay. I'm going to go to 21 or 20, but the whole community of Israel... Um, they left after hearing what Moses had said, that, that they should go and find all these things to yep. bring to build this. All in 21, all whose hearts were stirred and whose spirits were moved came and brought the sacred offerings for the Lord. They brought all the materials needed for the tabernacle. In 22, both men and women came, all whose hearts were willing. So there are people then distinct. Some are willing to provide for God. Some are willing to... Uh, Press in, I suppose, mm -hmm. and worship God. Some are not. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. And uh, they and they then donated some all sorts of uh, special things, and then um, the people of Israel in twenty nine, every man and woman who was eager to help in the work of the Lord had given them through Moses, brought their gifts and gave them freely to the Lord. Now, what really interested me was this was a choice. 
you could choose to bring these gifts. Yes. So is God sitting back saying, who is going to follow me? Who is uh, going yes. to come and donate? Yes. Who has a ready, willing heart? I think that tells us something about the nature of God. To the ancients who believed in the ancient Near East cultures, all the Babylonians, the Egyptians, all the ancient Near East cultures that were contemporaries of this new fledgling nation of Israel, they all believed that the God and that the image of God, who was usually the king of that particular nation, were tyrants, that they, they served their God and the king out of fear that you were expected to, you, there was in slavery and so on. The nature of what we're revealing here is a God who isn't enforcing himself upon people. He is inviting people into relationship with him. So he's looking for people he's who want to love him. He's looking for people who him. want to love him. That's a great way to look at it. He, that reveals something of the nature of our creator God. He is looking for people. That is the, that is the desire of God that we would uh, desire him, but he doesn't enforce mm -hmm. it. And he certainly doesn't punish them because they punish them, those who do not give. No, there's they nothing, all benefit from the There's an argument from silence there. There's an, they all benefited, yeah. even though maybe it would appear that not everyone brought. No. Yeah. And another verse here, the Lord has filled, okay, Bezalel. Bezalel and yeah, with the Aholiab. Spirit, <laughs> yeah, with the spirit of God, giving him great wisdom, wisdom, ability and expertise in all kinds of crafts. And we know that that guy then goes on and he crafts these things. And there are other people that come and help yep, and they yep. make these beautiful things for the tabernacle. But my point being, we're talking about the Spirit of God in, before. Is this an indication of what the Spirit of God is? Does the Spirit provide wisdom? So yes. when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, it translates into us gaining wisdom yep. or um, and having some new ability and some expertise yes so that is one of the primary attributes of the spirit of god is wisdom and that theme will be picked up throughout scripture and definitely and so he's given his talent that god has given this man talents and he now asks him to come and use those, use those talents, talents for me and yep. when you do that i will bless you with the holy spirit and you will grow in wisdom ability yes in yes so the how much of that is supernatural and how much of that is natural is open for i, I don't think the scriptures are dictating whether or not there was a natural gift that then the, the lord gave him natural talent and then he chose to bring those talents and use them or to how much was that was it a fledgling gift and then as he was willing to bring it then the holy spirit brought new ideas and new ways of doing things i think that's kind of how it works god tends to give everything to us in seed form. He gave Adam and Eve Eden in seed form. He said, this little bit, I'll give you this little bit. Don't just stay here. I want you to now use what I've given you, a little seed form, and make the rest of the earth look like this. And I think he will give you, he will give me seed form gifts. And then it's on us to steward those gifts and use them and develop them and, and grow. Part of why you're listening to this podcast is because you want to grow in your knowledge of God and scriptures rather than just sitting back and going well I know my little bit but no God wants you to steward, steward it and use it and as you do that as you listen to this you'll you, if you're doing that with the right heart you will go beyond what I am saying and the spirit of God will bring ideas and thoughts to you it happened to you Jeannie as you write as you write these questions and as others um, are listening that is how the Holy Spirit works he he's creative the Holy Spirit is creator being desires to give us wisdom so two main things creation and wisdom are two words that came out there. Create ability to be creative and wisdom. Well, we know the spirit is creative because that's the story of Genesis 1. The spirit dwelt upon the earth 
uh, upon the, the waters of the deep and created. So creation is part of the nature of the Holy Spirit, as it is this concept of wisdom, that you will be given by the Spirit wisdom to know how to do life well, how to bring heaven to earth, how to create the tabernacle on the earth. In this case, uh, Bezalel is actually physically creating Eden, the tabernacle on earth with, with wisdom. God could have just gone like that, created the whole thing, built the whole thing, and said, here it is, I've created this supernatural temple, like he did with the Garden of Eden. He created that. Adam didn't create the Garden of Eden. It was beyond that. God created the Garden of Eden. But in this case, God's partnering with humans and saying, I'm going to give you the blueprints, Moses. Now I'm going to partner with you. It's over to you guys. It's over to you. Uh, wow. Was No, I'm not going to ask that. I'm not going to ask, <laughs> is, is, was God wise to let us go and do our own thing? Oh, that's, that's actually that's... a really good question. I, I think that's worth thinking about. Yeah. I think that shows the, the love of God. In a nutshell, simplest answer is that at times I wonder, why didn't God just do it all himself because he could have done a better job than we do and he, he wouldn't, he's perfect, he wouldn't have failed. I think that shows how God willingly limits himself and wants to partner with people. And he's seeking for people. He's seeking people he to is. bring their gifts yes. and, uh, and be in relationship people who with are him. seeking him. Yes. If you yes. seek me with all your heart, you'll be found by me, yes. scriptures say. Yes. He is seeking seekers. He is not enforcing himself upon seekers, but he is seeking seekers. And is this why... Oh, it's a segue again. But anyway, I'll go there. Is this why some people become Christians earlier than others or we, we pray for people to come to know the Lord, but they don't for a long time? Is it just a simple thing, a difference in I am seeking, they are not seeking? I, I think we're getting a bit philosophical. Oh, I, have to, yeah. I, I want to wrestle with that yeah. um, as to at what point a person follows all Christ right, and right. doesn't. Don't it's not, it's a really good question, yeah. but I, I don't know that I... I don't think I'd, I think I'd be giving a fairly oversimplistic answer to that. I think that's a question that theologians, and we'll find this a lot in this podcast, there'll be questions which there'll be good arguments for and against different perspectives. Theologians argue with this stuff, so I don't presume to be able to, to know the nature of salvation. But it's, worth, it's certainly worth exploring, but okay. it's probably but beyond the scope of yeah, what we're going to talk big, about here. Yeah, it's a big question. One question is, if I am seeking God, are we assuming that one way to show that we are seeking God is by reading the word? Yeah, I think so. Well, or listening to it or studying it in some capacity. Yes, if, if God has revealed himself in Jesus, which he has, that's what we believe as if we're followers of Jesus, we believe that God has revealed himself in Jesus. The next logical question is, well, how is Jesus revealed to us? And there is a sense in which Jesus is revealed to our hearts. But I think to only say that, is shaky because God has revealed himself to Jesus in his word. In his word. So therefore, if we want to know what Jesus is like, we need to know his word. We need to know and understand the word of God. To not know the word is to not truly know Jesus. And you'll get people who go, I don't need the Bible. I just, me and Jesus, we just hang out together. Usually, more often than not, that's dangerous because people start saying, convincing them God has said things to them, which he hasn't said because it contradicts the word. So I think knowledge of God's word is a good practice. If you want to know Jesus, get to know his word. That's why we're doing a Bible reading plan. We want to open up the word to you and help you to study it and learn. Well, I have to confess that I didn't really start reading the Bible to know Jesus. Uh, that sounds terrible. No, <laughs> don't, don't tell my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I started reading it because I had a faith. I There was in something I couldn't see, something that yeah. was within me, something that I, I don't know. 
something was going on inside me. And uh, I thought to this, if somebody asks me, why do I believe in God? I couldn't actually answer them. Okay. Other than, oh, I, he spoke to me this way or I saw this yeah. happen in life. And I thought to myself, well, if I proclaim to be a Christian, then I should read this Bible because I don't actually have a solid foundation. Sure. I can't tell you why yeah. I believe in God. I can't yep. tell you why I think or yep. I feel this certain way. Yep. So I went looking in the Bible, not for Jesus, but for as something to give me an something e- a reason, more explanation. to explain. Concrete, yes. Not bad. Not a bad yep. thing. I think in the process of that, you will discover Jesus, but that's not bad. Um, Many Christians know what they believe, but don't know why they believe it. Well, see, because when I start growing up in the church, I would say I kind of felt like I knew who Jesus was, right. but I didn't really know who God yeah. was. Yeah, okay. And I know we talked about the subject of Father um, yep. before, but I, I felt like when I read the Old Testament, I got a very clear indication of who God was. And then I could see that God and Jesus are the same. Yes. But previous to that, I knew I you knew, knew about Jesus from the Bible stories, but not really the Bible yeah. in and of itself. Yes. Yeah. And then the Old Testament stories just threw me through. A Which is what like, most is people will God? say. Who, who's this? The, the, the argument is often that the God of the Old Testament doesn't match the Jesus of the New Testament. That's yes. a standard argument. So I went searching to make that connection. Yes, great. Yes. And I found it. Oh, my gosh. Now tell my mum that. <laughs> that's awesome. And that's true. That's, yeah. that's a passionate. That's like a Nicodemus heart. I want to know more. I want to learn more. Yeah. And it's good to know why you believe what you believe. So, yeah. So when somebody asks me, why do you believe? I can give it yeah. very definite. I'm well, not going to give it Even not just other people, yourself. Um, Christians who go, oh, I just believe it. We, I was raised on God said it. I believe it. That settles it. And it sounds pious. But in reality, when troubles come in life, God said it, I believe it, that settles. It doesn't wash. It doesn't, I don't know if it does for other people, but for me, my own brain gets in the way. You don't really believe that, do you? And so unless I can have a sense of reason, um, I will be, f- find myself contradicting myself or, or denying what I believe. Uh, I've heard Pastor Phil Pringle say it this way. He says, God wants your heart, but he wants you to keep your head. So, you know, yeah, th- and I think that's a good way to put it. We're not supposed to just disconnect our brains from our faith. Our faith transcends our brains, but we're supposed to engage our brains in thought and, and reasoning and nuance and logic and all those sorts of things. Oh, and I have to say, I know a lot of Christians who are very heart-based Christians, but I would say a lot of them are not head-based in what you're saying there because they don't read yeah. this. Yeah. And um, that's not a criticism. It's, no, it's, it's an hard expression. to do. But if we had our heart and our head... Would we feel more solid in uh, our well, faith? I, I, for me, I do. And that's partly why I have a Bible reading plan. It's partly why we're doing this podcast because I want you as, as a pastor, I know that what's best for all of us is that we actually engage our heart and our head and we learn and we grow in our knowledge. The Bible talks about knowledge is not a dirty word. I was raised as a Christian to think knowledge is bad. It's not. Knowledge is a good word. It's to, to know God and to know him through his word is actually a good thing. You'll deepen your faith if you do that. So we want you to embrace scripture. We want you to be challenged by the confronting stuff. 
In fact, it's, it's not a time to turn off. When something doesn't make sense, instead of it being, oh, that's all too hard, I'm just going to throw it out, it's actually an invitation into deeper knowledge. It's an invitation into question it. Ask, why is that confronting me? What's that raising in me? What might I not be understanding? And then the end result of that is you'll actually deepen your faith in God and your trust in God. And my, I said this in the last podcast, my knowledge of, of, my, of God has deepened as I have allowed... Uh, myself to be confronted and not live at such a 21st century level. As I've gone back and wrestled with how can the Old Testament be so violent and gone, that's, that doesn't, that doesn't freak me out anymore. I realize it, it's tragic, but it's God interacting where people are at, meeting them where they're at rather than just staying aloof from us. So that inspires and deepens me. Mm. But and I had to engage my head in that. Yes, and realizing it was a very different time. Different time. And also it's before we have Christ, before we yes. had Christ who said, love your enemies. Yes, that's right. You know, God said, what did he say? Love one another. Yeah. But Christ actually said, love your love enemies. Love your enemies. Which is a huge yeah. cultural shift. It's a major cultural shift. Yeah. And so when we look back, on Exodus 35 or any of the Old Testament scriptures and we, we, we're confronted by them, we need to realize that we're actually confronted by them because we live in a 21st century ethical worldview, which has been informed by Christian ethics. So the morality of our world is better than it was then simply because we have built our foundation upon the teachings of Jesus. So, are you, sorry, wait, what? Are you saying, oh, there it is, the Bible, Bible, wait, what? Wait, what? Are you saying I should go back and take, I should read and I should sort of take off my Christian spectacles that I'm reading this through and read it in and look at it as, at a very different time, a very different world, different cultures, different laws. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? That's exactly what we need yeah. to do. As we do that, we will get past the wait, what? And we'll go, ah, oh, that makes sense. If you could place yourself as a, an Israelite who's just walked through the Red Sea and is living in the desert, or the, child, the children of those that are living in the desert, um, the children of those that have passed through, and imagine what that would be like and remove your 21st century lens and your experience and your culture from that. That will help you to understand the scriptures. Yeah. And our judgment. And it will suspend our judgment. Suspend it. Okay. Yeah. And if we do that, we'll start to see how what we read compares with the teachings of the parallel nations around about. And we suddenly realize, oh, this God's different. This God's inviting us into relationship. This God's not, as I said before, this God's not enforcing himself upon us. This God is, is inviting us to give our gifts, not telling us the kings would demand it. He's, he's inviting it. Inviting. This is a different God. This is a different character to the gods that the nations knew at that time. Okay, I had 20,000 thoughts there. <laughs> different God. Um, He's different in his character. Different in his character. And this would have stood out at that time. Absolutely it did. In fact, yeah. much, of the old t much of this stuff is written as a parody. It's written, as a, it's written almost as a, as a, as a socio-political critique of the people of the nations around. Even the Mosaic law, it has a lot of similarities to the laws of the nations around about it. But then it has some stark differences which reveal this gracious God, this compassionate God, this non-slave master God. So it is about, it, it's, you might say the morality of the Mosaic law is lower than the standards of the law today, but compared to the standards of the law of its time, it's above those laws. So it's well, far above, which far we'll, above. Actually, we'll get to in uh, the next chapter, sure. Numbers 27. Oh, yep. um, but should first, should we do that or should we go to John 20, the corresponding? Let's go to John 20. John 20. 
So, oh, we did go off track, didn't we? Did we we kind of, yeah, kind of, yeah, a little bit. I'm just going to Not as far off as we went in episode one, let's just say no. that. <laughs> well, we can talk. Yes. Yep. Uh, John 20. All right. So that is the resurrection, is it? Sure. Is it not? Yeah. Yep. It's uh, where the, the, he. John 20 is where he breathes on his disciples. He and breathes says, on his disciples. Receive the Holy Spirit. And the women meet him. The women yep. are the ones there. Yep. And. And as you said before, this is a very different God. First of all, we're, we're seeing what you said there play out here. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a very different God who uses women yes. to tell stories yep. and other cultures did not. No. So now, and we're, now we're not just referring to the practice of the ancient Near East. We're bringing it forward into first century Rome. And we're talking about women seeing Jesus and going, this that was thousands cultural. of years apart. Okay, this, this is 14, 1400 plus years 14. apart here, and now we're dealing with the fact that Roman culture uh, and Jewish culture had no value upon women whatsoever. You, a woman was not a, a credible witness. So the Bible crosses many cultures. Yes. Oh, that would help. That would help that you to know when you read, yeah. read it. Yeah, that there's a big the difference between. <laughs> Uh, ancient Near East, Bronze Age, 1400 to 1000 BC culture, moving forward into Iron Age culture, into Roman, Greek and Roman, Greco-Roman culture. And that we're talking, just think about how much our world has changed in the last 1400 years, right? So yeah. you've got to realise... Well, in the last few weeks. Or the last few yeah. weeks in our case, yes, <laughs> culture is on an expanding yeah. thing. So yes, think about it that way and realise that we can't, we've got to think about, there's a big difference between Joshua and Moses... And the, New and, and the New Testament culture, yeah. Okay. John 20. So in Exodus 35, they were building the tabernacle the, with, and then the temple was built and now we're in that time period where the temple is there. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, John 20. John 20. You say something while I look it up. What's well, something John, interesting to read? So Something interesting. So John 20, Jesus is about to, this is John's account of what we see in Luke and Acts slightly different because John's telling it from a different perspective. But here he's talking about breathing on them. He's birthing the church and he's saying, if, I think this is where you're going with it. He said, my peace I live with you. If you, uh, And then with that he breathed on them the Holy Spirit. Yes. Is that where you're going? Yes. And said, if you forgive anyone their sins... They are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Is that the scripture that you're is, looking yeah. at? Yeah, thank goodness we do have some notes. <laughs> well, I don't know. John 20 was enough for me to assume that's what you were yeah. talking about when you said, peace be with you. Yes, peace be with you. That's what I found really weird. He's He's been killed. He comes back and that's the first thing he says to them yeah. is, peace be with you. Yeah. Why did he say that? I think he, this is just, I've never really thought about the question. I suspect, I suspect it's, it may have something to do with the fact that they are about to move into a time when their world, will, their world personally will not be at peace. They are moving into an era where they will come up against the authorities that being a follower of Jesus will demand of them uh, persecution, a misunderstanding, misrepresentation. Uh, some will be flogged. Some will be martyred. And so it would appear like anything but peace. And so he, I think what he... And I could stand, as I reflect on this, I could be completely off base here, but I think that might be part of it, is saying, I'm going to give you a peace that will pass all that, even though it might not seem like your world is at peace. As a follower of me, you're going to have a peace that I'm going to leave with you. Ah, that's what I was going to ask, because we do know that they've just come out of a very 
terrible time. They've just watched Jesus die. Yes, yeah. They have disbanded. They yep. have thought that Jesus was to be this Messiah in the way they believed him to be, that he yep. would come and rescue Jerusalem, yep. etc. Um, and the whole world has fallen apart. Everything yep. they thought was going to happen hasn't happened. Yep. Jesus is dead and he comes back. And in the words, peace be with you, there, I believe, and what you've sort of said, is that breathing God's spirit into them. Peace be with you here. And no matter what the world is going to go through, you have to remember that I have given you peace. Yes, I think that's it. And, and the, the spirit is linked to peace as well. One of the other analogies for the, the spirit, dove, spirit, peace. You know, the, the, the Noah whole account there. I think that, that one of the things that when the spirit gives, we've already talked about creativity. We've talked about wisdom. I think peace is another thing that is a gift of the spirit. Well, first, uh, Galatians chapter 5, 23 tells us that peace is one of the gifts of the spirit of God, the fruit of the spirit. So something that the spirit gives us is peace. And I think that's what J John's wanting to allude to here is that um, you're always going to have the Spirit with you. I'm going to leave, but you're going to have the Spirit, and the Spirit will bring, you, will bring you peace. And the Spirit is to be their guard and teacher, is what you've sort of said before. Yes, I think th those Wait, things... Wait, this isn't Pentecost, it. though. This is his... Ah, okay. Um, so this, the scholars are de will debate this, whether or not this is just... whether this event happened the way it's described in John, because John's Gospel, remember, is... The, uh, the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptic Gospels. There's a lot of similarities in those other three. Some significant differences, and they're coming from different, different things, but they're largely the same. John's is quite different. There's very, little, uh, very few overlaps between the two. And so Luke's Gospel talks about the day of Pentecost, uh, in fact, the book of Acts, but Luke and Acts are linked together as a single, the same guy wrote both of those books, the day of Pentecost. Scholars, if you research this, they'll say, well, is this the day of Pentecost? Is this happening? That, that can't be right. This isn't the day of Pentecost because this is while Jesus is still on the earth. I don't have a distinct answer for that other than John's remembering this story as being one of the disciples that was there. He's remembering this story as there was some encounter with Jesus prior to his ascension to heaven where he um, breathed on them. He imparted into them what they would need for the future. So this isn't the day of Pentecost, but it would seem that it's doing the same thing as the day of Pentecost. Okay. I, I can't answer whether it's just whether this actually happened or this is just John's way of telling the story. I, I don't know. I know that I struggle to remember what happened yesterday, let alone if I'm writing this 40 years later. Mm. Um, but there was a sense in which John's trying to remember back and reflect on Jesus um, baptizing in the Holy Spirit, filling them with the Holy Spirit. I just want to read something to you that I read in a commentary. Sure. Yes, I do read commentaries. I don't know if it's a good, good. one, but yeah, I read go. them. Uh, where it says that the four appearances of Jesus here, um, the four appearances banished four great enemies of the human heart. Sorrow, fear, doubt, and care. Wow. Mary was weeping. Yep. Disciples were trembling. Thomas was doubting and the apostles were despairing. In each case, the appearance of Jesus dismissed the enemy and filled the hearts with joy, courage, faith and contentment. This is a brilliant example of something where we can... I love that. That is really good. Is that the intention of those... Are these, are these all John's appearances or just general appearances? Uh, in uh, John, in John, yep. Yes. Are these Okay, so whether or not... As John is telling his story, he is intending to write those four. Um, I don't know for certain. There are certain things you can read and go, oh, that's what they were implying. 
um, whether or not he wrote it with that in mind, whether or not he's just recording what happened and the Holy Spirit intended those four, or whether or not that's something that this commentator has derived by the Spirit or just from their own knowledge. I don't know which one of those it is, but it's still, this is the, this is the thing about the Word of God being living and active. What I wouldn't do is I wouldn't go emphatically, oh, John intended to mean those four, record those four, because he was trying to give those uh, four responses okay. to fear, misery, despairing, whatever it was you said, the four that you said. However, I think it's a valid commentary. What we mustn't do is, is form doctrine on commentary. It's helpful and it's useful, but don't go beyond the scriptures. If the scriptures themselves aren't saying these four were written for this purpose, don't, um, don't assume they definitely were. Well, I just see commentaries as just another way to open it up. Correct. You know, another That's way to invite discussion. Yeah, exactly. Rather. And and use use the internet the same way. Don't build doctrine from the internet. Don't build doctrine from GPT. Don't build doctrine from Google. But open it up and use it to generate thought and then bring and then use the thought because what, what say GPT, if you're asking a question of that, what it will do is it will be reflecting on the collective wisdom of humanity. It's not thinking those things up for itself. It's reflect, uh, reflecting on all what scholars have written, come up with that, and it might enlighten you, just like reading the old-fashioned study Bible, NIV study Bible, my very first Bible, down the bottom, the little commentary. That's not Bible, but it's someone's commentary on Bible, which is good to know because it will often help you to see things that you would not have seen yourself otherwise. Well, that's true. I mean, otherwise I'm just reading it the same way every, every time. time. Every time. That's yeah. right. So if you want to be a good student of the word, be open to other people's perspectives and then wrestle with them. Some you'll dismiss, some you'll add, some of you'll adjust, but that's all, that's all good. That's how we grow in the word. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you there. And I'm just looking, there was something, I don't, it's not here where he talks about opening up the scriptures, is it? That's a different. Yeah, no. that's, that's uh, Luke 24, that's the road to Emmaus, where he opened okay. up the scriptures. Right. and yeah. So we'll go to Luke another day. Yeah, so another day. We'll be there. Uh, do you want to say anything else about John 20? No, I think we can skip ahead. All right. So we'll head over to Numbers 27. So we'll head over to Numbers 27, which is, this is where the daughters get an inheritance. The daughters of Zelophehad. Yeah, I left out the name because I was never <laughs> going to say it. <laughs> Mala, Dula, Fula. I always think of, yeah, Condafrutera. The four women. Yeah. 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 Four girls. <laughs> oh, wow. Mala, that's Fula, a, Dula, Fula. Rage. And a garbage. <laughs> for those comedy company yeah. fans from yes. Yeah. So in this chapter, we understand that the 12 tribes have been given an inheritance in Canaan. Yes, correct. correct. Promised land. Yes. Now, um, there, in two, in Joseph's children, Manasseh and whatever. Let's Man just Manasseh and Ephraim. Yeah, yep. Ephraim. There are there are these daughters where their sons have died. Their husbands have died. Yes, Is I that think correct. Or no, I think in this case, I think their father didn't have any sons. I think, is that correct? So, Ooh, maybe. Don't uh, ask me if it's correct. Oh, Jeez, I, oh I think. <laughs> Anyway, me, the point, regardless of, we don't have to go and read that, but the point would be the same regardless of whether they were widows or whether they, I think what it is, is these four daughters, there were no sons. So these, so the, the, the time was that the inheritance would be passed down from father to son. And by inheritance, I mean the, the land. It was, that was the system by which 
land was distributed to families. God's intention was to equalize and give everyone, everyone land. But in this case, this, this Zelophehad guy, he has no sons. So the question is, what do we do with the inheritance? Okay, so just build the culture around me here. Yeah. So sons inherit everything. There's no women get nothing. Yes, that's correct. I should say, no, that's correct. Um, in, and that would be pretty standard throughout most of history, even right up till the Middle Ages, that generally speaking, it was the sons that received an inheritance. That, that is still spilled, spilled over into more often than not people taking, wives taking their husband, husband's surname. It's, it's that same concept that's developed through time. Um, it's not all good. It's not all good. I don't necessarily agree with it as being all good, but that was very much the culture. But it was set for the purpose of making sure that there would be no poor, that people would not be left out, that there would always be an inheritance transferred down to someone, and it would stay within that family, so that some other person couldn't take away that family plot of land. It was it was actually there, not just in God's plan, but throughout all ancient Near East cultures, and probably I can't comment on. Asian cultures and all that, but so I have no frame of reference for whether that was the case in Asian culture or pagan Middle Eastern cultures or whatever, uh, pagan cultures, but it's definitely an ancient Near Eastern culture. It was passed down so that they would maintain that inheritance within that family unit. That's right. That was the intention. Intention. And here we have a piece of text which stands out and it shows God as being a different kind of God. You got it. Uh, in what you commented before, uh, you said something about... The, sometimes the, I say in the Moses law, it might look archaic to us, but yeah. in comparison to the times, it is above its time. It's ahead of its time. Yeah. yeah. And so when I read this, I, it starts off, one day a petition was presented by the daughters of Zelophehad. Zelophehad. But here it names the women. Yes. Mala, Noah, as you said, Holger, Melka, and Tony, those, those ones. Yeah, those ones, yep. That's huge to name women, Absolutely first of all. it is. Okay, and then these women, they've come out of this time in the wilderness. Yep. Correct? And they then come to Moses and the priest, and they say, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers who rebelled from, uh, against the Lord. Yep, that's uh, another story. Died. That's another story. Yep. So he, he's establishing that they're establishing their father was um, a valid, a valid, a valid Israelite. Yes, person. a godly person. Okay. Yep. And then they ask, why should the name of our father disappear from his clan uh, just because he had no sons? Give us property along with the rest of our relatives. Yep. This is women coming before the leaders, asking that. First of all, you have to have a culture where that is okay. Absolutely. For women to come. Yep. and do that and yep. they're not killed they're, did they get, didn't they used to get killed if they came and touched the tab no if tabernacle they, oh they couldn't even get near the tabernacle couldn't get near it yeah. but he's in front of this yeah they've near. come right they come to the front yes that's as far as they come he's yep. there it's it once again is a picture of even in this early stages there's a there's a degree of um openness certainly not the level of openness we would have about gender equality now but it's there is a, a sense of equality there that was not existing in the other cultures. Men would never, uh, women would not normally ever dream of coming before the leader of the nation. Uh, they would find a man to go for them. And yet this story is very clear that these women 
for whatever reason, I don't know whether or not it was accepted or whether they were actually outside the norm. I suspect probably they were outside the norm. I don't know that even in Jewish culture at that time, there would have been an understanding that women could do this. But something inside these women, they had felt that they could come forward and ask for something. Well, here they, they reference Korah, who rebelled against the Lord. Yep. And yet, these are women that are stepping out in faith. They are claiming essentially land that is, isn't already claimed. So they're making – it's like a statement of faith for them saying, when we move into the land – Yes, it is. Yep, that's not, a good point. We haven't got the land we yet. We haven't got it. So when but we move in, saying, when we, we want do. the land. Yes. Yeah, so because when we move in, Dad's gone. This land, we don't know where it would go. To be, we would miss out altogether is what they were saying because we're women without any sons, without any brothers for us, we're going to miss out altogether. We don't think that's fair. Yeah. And while other people might not have thought they were still going to get to the land, these women, these women do had believe faith to believe they that they faith. were going to get to the land. Yep, that's and great. I've not thought about it. Good point. Yep. Oh, well, thanks. I no, made a good point. Because I think oh, – you made a really good point. <laughs> yeah. I think the story revisits with Joshua and they actually come up and say, by the way, Moses said that. Yes, they do. Yeah. Yes, I remember that. And so then Moses brings their case before the Lord and the Lord replied to Moses, the claim of your daughters is legitimate. You must give them a grant of land. So what does that tell us about the nature of God? It tells us that Moses had to go and check with God because he didn't know. He's figuring this out as he goes. Well, good point, girls. I don't really know. Sorry, ladies. I, I, it's a really good point. What, what does that mean? And he went and asked the Lord and the Lord revealed something of his nature. Yes, you're absolutely Eden. right. This is Eden. Eden. To, equality. To, this is equality, right? This is Adam and Eve. And Eve was entitled to the inheritance as much as Adam. Yeah, exactly. And these ladies are entitled to an inheritance just because they don't have a brother does not mean they don't inherit land. Yeah. This would have been shocking. Really. It's revolutionary. Revolutionary. Yep. Yeah. And it's really yep. worth reading. So I'm, yep. I'm glad that you... Um, it's a great example of why we need to put ourselves in that context because we could dismiss it and go, that's ridiculous. What a patriarchal society that is that, that women had to do that. Put it in its context and see how it compares to the common context and you realise it's not actually... It's actually radically progressive. Yeah, time. it is. And that's what we should be saying more. It's the fact these women were actually written about yep. and named is huge. It's, it's huge. different to everything at the time. Yep, totally. And it's showing God's heart yep. for equality for men and women. Yep. In fact, before we move on to John 14, but bearing in mind too that this whole concept of, of how the Bible elevates women is, it's, we talked about John 20 and the women at the, the tomb seeing the account first. We only just touched on that. That Jesus, uh, you know, he he the first ones to see are the what would be uncredible witnesses in the eyes That's of right. the yep. world. Uh, the the genealogy of Jesus includes women, and the four women that it includes, with the exception of Mary, three of them are actually women who not only just they're not only are they women. Rahab the prostitute, um, you know, um, questionable women, questionable yeah. women, I suppose, in that sense. And yet, God is revealing His nature working through people who everyone else would dismiss and god's going i'm not limited by that and this is one of those things this 21st century lenses as you say yep. we need to take them off yep. and look at the point of difference yep. compared to the other contemporary accounts of the time yeah yeah okay well yep. i have no further questions for that chapter all right i good. think numbers 27 good <laughs> So 
So I'm just going to move us along to um, chapter 14 and where this is basically described as Jesus, the way to the Father, and Jesus promises the Holy Spirit. And I should just say just before this actually happens, um, Jesus has just predicted his betrayal to his disciples. Mm -hmm. And then he comes in at verse um, 1 and he says, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my Father's home, which must sound crazy Crazy to them yeah who knows what that means to them at this point and and then Jesus tells them in verse 6 I am the way the truth and the life no one can come to the father except through me if you had really known me you would know who my father is from now on you do not you do know him and have seen him and then poor old Philip uh, he sort of says Lord show us the father and we'll be satisfied and then Jesus says have I been with you all this time Philip and yet you still don't know who I am do you feel as confused as Philip when you read that? <laughs> yeah, I do. I do. This is very, very cryptic sort of conversation here. That John's yeah. gospel is incredibly cryptic. It it's, is cryptic. It's a funny language John uses. But it's it's po- it's almost poetic. It's almost poetic. I think. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. And then you know, uh, in ten, don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? The, this concept of of God being Jesus and Jesus being God is still lost on them yep. at this point, right? Yep. Okay. But we have the benefit of reading. That we can read this in hindsight. with hindsight, and years of church, uh, church historians and theologians wrestling with this. We've got the benefit of all of that. Okay, and still we're a little bit confused. And still, we can be confused. <laughs> okay, yeah. and then in twelve, I tell you the truth: anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done, and even greater works, because I'm going to be with the Father. Do you think the disciples are sitting there going, "Am I going to be able to bring sight to the blind?" Yeah, I wonder if they were because even Jesus seems to make some pretty audacious claims about what they're going to be able to do there. So I honestly don't know. I think it's worth exploring. I think with a chapter like John 14, you could unpack each individual phrase almost and teach a curriculum out of it and discuss it on its its own merit, couldn't you? Yeah, you're right. But we're going to do that in just a brief amount of time. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, We haven't got time to go through all of that. But it it really is a chapter that you have to sit and and give a lot of thought to and think about how it would have sounded to them hearing this after they've heard he's going to be betrayed and they still don't understand what that is. And then he's saying things like, you can ask for anything in my name, Yep. in my name, not God's name. And I will do it so that the Son can bring glory to the Father. Yes, ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. This is one of those passages as a child, you know, reading. It's like, oh, what can I ask for? Ah, I see. You yeah, know? Like Christmas time. It's almost like yeah. a divine vending machine. That's right. It's got a divine vending yeah. machine. Yeah. But I'm bringing us to um, verse 16, or 16 and 17, which I actually think warrants a really big conversation. Uh, so I hope that we... Do you think we could do a full... uh, Let me read it first. Sure. Okay. Verse 15. If you love me, obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads him into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it isn't looking for him and doesn't recognize him. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. Okay. Sorry. Uh, The Holy Spirit. Wait. What? (laughs) Yes. Do they have any concept of what this is? And this is what I say. I think we really need to have a podcast just on the Holy Spirit. But answer my question. Sure. Please. Do they have any Any concept concept of who the Holy Spirit is? I would say yes, but I don't know that they would have fully grasped the 
depth of meaning that Jesus was um, indicating here. And I think this probably was developed into the early years of the church as they discussed the whole doctrine of God and the Trinity and so on, which was a doctrine that they wrestled with. And it's, it's there, but they wrestled with it and saw it in scripture over time. So it gives this concept of developing doctrine. I think we have to be comfortable with that, Jeannie. We have to be comfortable with that people hearing things at certain times have limited knowledge. I think they had some knowledge, no doubt about it. The, spirit, the concept of the Spirit of God was not uh, completely lost on them. We read it in Genesis 1, yeah. that the Spirit hovered over the deep. So they had some concept of the Spirit. They had references to the Holy Spirit throughout the Old Testament. David in Psalm 51 famously prays, uh, take not thy Holy Spirit away from me. So they definitely had a concept. Uh, but to say to what degree it was at this particular point in time, I'm not so sure. I don't know what they would have really thought. No doubt you could research and see what was the prevailing worldview among the rabbis at the time. Um, but yeah, I think it's a nuanced view that Jesus is giving them of the Holy Spirit. I know from in some of the other readings that we'll be, t- we'll be talking about, the Holy Spirit often comes upon people and it al- allows them to do certain tasks or become a certain kind of person mm-hmm. like a king but so is the Holy Spirit or was the Holy Spirit limited in the Old Testament? And is Jesus sort of saying now it's now the Holy Spirit is going to be unlimited? Is that I, a I weird way to think I of it? Th- no, I don't. I think even though this kind of warrants some further thought and wrestling on my part, and so I don't know how much of this is going to be anchored in. This is the thing is it's oftentimes for all of us, no matter how long we've been followers of the Bible and, and the word, we often form beliefs because we've heard them in sermons or we've heard them in doctrine and then we form them up and we make them part of us and we don't really wrestle with where did that come from. So he, what I mean by that is that I have been taught and I think I could think, I could think it through that the, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came upon specific people at specific times for specific purposes. So there was a, a limit to, if you like, the presence of the Holy Spirit. He the Holy Spirit willingly limited presence upon certain people at certain times for specific purposes. Bezalel, the artist, the kings, the prophets, there was a sense of they, they had a mark from the Holy Spirit for that time. Uh, different, Jesus was different. Uh, it says, God the Father gave him the Spirit without measure. So there's a sense of which, in which the Spirit's impartation upon Jesus of Nazareth, the man, was at a different level. However, I think it's also pertinent to realise that as the New Testament writers unpack this and think through things like this passage, there is an understanding in them that the New Testament Christian has a deeper or a a different kind of experience of the Spirit's presence to what the Older Testament men and women of God did. I wonder if this also means, because the Holy Spirit knows that we're going to have that we us now as Christians are going to have the bible and so we're going to be able to understand it in a way that they weren't privy to in a way so the holy spirit is moving through the word yep and helping us now mm. oh gosh does that even make sense where yes, is that going with that yeah, it does i yeah. think it does i think that we we've spent a lot of time already talking about how we need to put ourselves in the mindset and with the worldview that they had and remove our 21st century lens and all that. We've talked about that. That's not to, for a moment, think that the Holy Spirit existing outside of time can't uh, still tell a story that was for us, although it's not to us, 
that would make sense to us in the 21st century that, that was beyond what those uh, hearers heard at that time. I don't, I don't think we should limit God in that way. If that's what you're saying, is that the Spirit knew that we would be reading yes. this post Yes. Post Jesus' resurrection. I think that's what I was saying. I, I think that's how I understood you saying. Yeah. Oh, good. Thank but goodness that it makes mean, sense that to you. Mean I understood what you meant either. But here it says, He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. The world cannot receive him because it, do, it isn't looking for him and he doesn't recognize him. This brings me back to what I was saying. I can't remember if it was this podcast or the last podcast, but um, oh, around the tabernacle. Mm-hmm. Where they were talking, uh, it was God was looking for people who were looking for Him. Is the Holy Spirit looking for people who were looking yeah, for that's Him? Right. Yeah, you were talking about that. Yeah. Yes. Oh, okay. I think I just answered my own question. All right, we can finish up now. What did you? What was your answer? <laughs> um, I think that basically we don't receive Him because we aren't looking for Him. If we're looking for Him, if we're asking for the Holy Spirit, we're seeking God, then we will recognize who God is and what the Holy Spirit does and what the Holy Spirit allows us to see in our yep. lives or allows us to guide us. And That's great, Jeannie. Oh, I'm, hearing, I'm hearing <laughs> Jesus' conversation in John 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well and illuminating those who worship the Father will worship in spirit and truth for they are the kinds of worshippers the Father is seeking. So there is a sense in what you're saying is that the Father is seeking us. The Spirit of God is seeking us out for relationship and intimacy. Uh, but it's still incumbent upon us to seek out the Father and the Spirit as well. Yes. Yeah, so it, what you're saying is basically that we have to still do something. Yeah. We can't just sit back um, and what did you say earlier? You said, oh, I can't remember. We've talked about too much. <laughs> That's just, just crazy. My mind is just <laughs> off. Um, oh, here, and in, in uh, verse 21, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. So, yes, there is something that we do need to do, isn't there? We need to love and obey yes. him. Yes, which is something that evangelical and Protestant Christians have we skip over that passage without thinking about it because we've been conditioned to believe there's nothing we can do that can earn our salvation. And so because we, we know that we aren't saved by our good works, we're saved by grace, whenever we see scriptures like this where Jesus will say, I think all the apostles will expect a certain behaviour of us, we just kind of tune them out almost intuitively because it doesn't fit our worldview. But it's very clear there that your behaviour matters. Jesus is, is saying in, in no uncertain terms there that your behaviour the way you conduct your life does matter. It doesn't matter for salvation, but the fruit of it should be obedience. I have a pretty silly question. There are no silly questions. Oh, there might be. Uh, this one here, 21, those who accept my commandments. Now, Jesus says a lot of things in his life, in, particularly in John. There's a lot of conversation here, but what exactly are Jesus' commandments? Uh, um, my, my head straight away would when I see the word commandment, would go to Moses' law, okay, the Ten Commandments, and by implication, all of Moses' law in the Old Testament. So that's the framework. I think that's what they're loading up in their mind, that, a command, that their Jewish worldview is that there are certain rules um, that conduct their life, that a, a good Jew would uh, Because he by. is their master as well. He's which their he Lord, sort of yes, said that's in right. Another verse, he describes himself as their, their, as master. their master. Yeah, which means there's teacher. an expectation of certain behaviour. No question about that at all. So I think with that in mind, that there is 
that. I think the question then begs, well, what are the commandments of Jesus? I think probably the best place you could find them is Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, 7, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is really, it's a commentary on the Old Testament law and setting up a standard for living by. Um, love your neighbour as yourself, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. All of the principles the pr- that he lays out in 5, 6 and 7, they are, they're elsewhere, they're in Luke as well, but that's just a, if you want to find out what does Jesus really say about how a Christian should live, I think you'll find it within those three chapters um, as a pretty good starting point anyway. So when he's saying, uh, hear my commandments, he's sort of assuming that they know the commandments. And as we are reading it now, we should assume that we need to go back and look at other places yes. to see what those commandments yes. are, that it's not yeah. actually in this text right now. They spent three years with Jesus. So they got to see what he was about and who he was about. And, and uh, they, these things, John says at the end, these things are written down for you at the end of his gospel that you might believe. So he is definitely having in mind that we should be studying the life of Jesus. If we want to know what it means to live as a Christian, to follow him, then study his life and do what he did. And in yes, and in 23, all who love me will do what I, what I say. There it is. So my father will love them and we will come and make a home with each of them. So in our hearts? Is that what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's saying he'll live inside our hearts. Yeah. Oh, and anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. So that's a good indication, isn't it? If you, if you are loving Jesus, then you are acting in love. Yeah. Right. And, and being tolerant with people and being generous. Yeah. Uh, and if you don't love Jesus, then you're looking a lot more like the world around you. Yeah. So in John's letter, 1 John 4, where he uses the word love like ad nauseum constantly, <laughs> he says... But brethren, let us love one another for love comes from God and God is love. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So over and over again, he's saying that the fruit of a life who, of a person who loves God will be that they will love others. Yeah. And in fact, in John's gospel, in this very passage, this context, somewhere in 14, 15, 16, 17, he will say exactly that. He will say, um, as I have loved you, so you should then go and love one another. Yeah. That's John 15. That's part of our readings, which is good. We'll kind of go ahead there. Uh, I just want to point out in verse 25, I'm telling you these these things while I'm still with you, but when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. And then in 27, I'm leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart. Really interesting how Jesus here, he's just told them that he's going to be betrayed and all he's thinking about is his disciples. Mm, It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, and telling them you are going to have peace. Mm. They don't quite know what they're about to go through. It's not peace, believe me. It's not peace. (laughs) It's the opposite of peace. Persecution, suffering. And the peace is a gift the world cannot give. And peace peace that surpasses all understanding. Yeah, mind and heart, not peace of... Uh, relationships around you, not peace of people, everyone likes you, peace that's deeper than that, mm. mind and heart, yeah. So don't be troubled or afraid. Pretty But they stuff. were. And <laughs> afterwards. hey, when you read their story, they're you human. wonder. Yeah, they're human beings. Yeah. Yes. And I'm just here looking at my Bible. That's why I'm taking a pause. Oh, I love this. I don't have much time, more time to talk to you because the ruler of the world approaches. Who's the ruler of this world? I think in that context, he's talking about the enemy, the devil, who's, who's getting ready to uh, launch this onslaught against him and put him on the cross. And he's the 
complete ruler of the world. So ruler of everybody that is not Christian. Because he says he has no power of me. Uh, as, yeah. And if we believe in Christ, does it also mean he has no power over me? Yes. Yes, it does. He's called the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world. Uh, the, the, the analogies that are used of Satan, the accuser, the Satan, which means the accuser. So really Satan isn't necessarily a, a noun, it's a description. It's a, it means the accuser. So think legal term. So it's the one who accuses us and, uh, and he does have power over those that are not of the Father. So another place in John, Jesus is, says this, uh, he has this conversation, I think it's probably John 8 or thereabouts, where he will specifically say, um, you belong to your father, the devil. And they go, we're, at, we're children of Abraham. We've never been... Oh, yes, I, I remember this. We've never this, been, yeah. uh, yep. for, you know, owned by anybody but Abraham. And he goes, no, no, if you really knew Abraham, you would know me because you know my father because I came from my father. And so Jesus is drawing a line there and John's picking up on it here, I think, and, and showing that... If we're not of God's kingdom, we are of a different kingdom. We are of the kingdom of this world, which is under the control and the value system and the, the structures of the accuser. So the accuser is out there in the world. And yet here Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit will dwell inside, inside of us. you. Yes. What does that mean? What does it mean that oh, the Holy Spirit will dwell inside of us? What, yeah, what does it mean? But what are the uh, benefits? Are, the are there any benefits? Like, I, I would think that by having... This is what why I load up in my mind when I, when I hear those words. It doesn't matter what happens out there because the one who is in me is greater than the one who is in the world, which is something else John says in one of his letters. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, which is his way of saying whatever happens in the world around you, Know that the spirit of God on the inside of you is greater than that, that you can stand up against anything that the world, the systems of this world will throw at you because you have the life force of God, the spirit through the spirit on the inside of you. That's pretty encouraging. I'm pretty inspired by that. Yeah. I mean, if it isn't encouraging, then what are we doing here? Yes, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah. And he, Jesus is telling, like you just said, Jesus is about to go to the cross and die. And he's thinking about what, can I, what are the most important things? If you think about it in that context, what he says in these chapters, 14, 15, 16, thereabouts, this is his last chance to download to his disciples and he's chosen these words. So if, you, if, you know, if someone's about to die and they call their children in or their grandchildren in just beside their bed, they're going to make sure their last words count, aren't they? I think that's a bit of that here. That's right. Yeah. yeah. These are like Jesus, really important things that we should get. And I'm just wondering where Jesus talks about that he's the way to the Father. Is and I know in the Old Testament it was the you would have to come to the priest to pray to the yep. priest and the priest would take your prayers to yep. God. Uh, is Jesus essentially replacing the idea of a priest that he is now the way to the Father? You come to him to pray. He's he's the guy. Yep, he's the guy. Yeah. Remember we talked about how John's Gospel has the way, the gate, all those analogies, which are all tabernacle, temple analogies in the previous podcast or early in this podcast, whenever it was. That's what he's saying. So he's claiming a priestly duty here. He is now saying, um, you don't need to go to the priest. You come through me. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So he's the true priest. He's the true priest, which the writer to the Hebrews will pick up on and say, Jesus is our great high priest. And he contrasts Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus with the priesthood of, of Aaron. 
And he says, those priests are human beings that still fall and still need to commit, still need to present offerings for themselves. But we have a great high priest who was without sin, who is at a different standard, a higher priesthood, who once and for all made a way for us. So he's the priest. The Holy Spirit is within us, mm -hmm. which hasn't come yet. It comes at Pentecost, which is not That's, in these verses, yep. not in these, not in these chapters. Yep. But is this essentially saying that I now have a direct relationship with God? Yes, no question about that's what Jesus and it's wanted us to get is that um, you now have open access to the Father through the Son. You don't have to go through priestly duties. You don't have to go to a mediator. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to go to temple. You don't have to do any of those things in order to have a relationship with the Father. Your relationship with the Father is contingent upon one thing only, and that is that you believe in Christ, that you have a relationship with the Father through him. So all the little prayers I say you know, under my breath, God's hearing those yeah. prayers? Yeah, if they are, and we'll talk about this, if they are in Jesus' name, if they are in, in a relationship with Jesus, he hears every prayer, absolutely. Yep. So he's the priest, he, he takes, Jesus hears it, God hears it, he takes my prayers to God, Praise on my behalf, yeah. which I believe. Interceding, yeah. Interceding. And now here in chapter 15, it's described Jesus as the Jesus, the true vine. Mm -hmm. And now here in chapter 15, it's described Jesus as the Jesus the true vine. Mm -hmm. Um, what? What? I get I get the priest, but the true vine. Why this tree, the plant analogy thing, analogy uses. going Always on? Always metaphors. Yeah. Remember, it's an agrarian society. We're living. We're talking to Jews. If there's one thing you do, come to me with Israel. You'll see lots of great. You'll see lots of vineyards and lots of olive groves They're and pomegranates, everywhere. right? And pomegranates. Actually, oh. there's a funny story about that. We yeah. took a, a trip, trip there in 2018, and uh, one of the young guys that was with us, he spent his entire trip looking for pomegranate. He was determined <laughs> to have pomegranate, and he found one in Jaffa on the very last day. All over. They're supposed to be everywhere. He couldn't find them anywhere. He found it at the market in Jaffa, and he made it into a pomegranate juice. He was so excited, he didn't even like it. So, <laughs> After uh, all of that. so God answered his prayers on the last, <laughs> on the last day. Just before we boarded the flight, actually. <laughs> we had like an hour to spare, and he found, found it in the market after his two-week search for pomegranates. But you'll have no trouble finding olives, and you'll have no trouble finding grapes. They are all over the hills of Galilee and all over the hills of, of, of Jerusalem. So when Jesus is talking grapevine, they get it. So he's using something they're seeing yes. to explain his that intention. Principle. Yeah. Which oh, is that's clever. That's just not Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the master of that, but the Old Testament is full of that too. So when you read Old Testament, if you can I know we're saying this ad nauseum, but if you can put yourself back into the context of the people who were reading it at any given time, it will bring it to life. Do not overlay our even to overlay our twenty first century context on whether it's uh, to do with making wine because making wine in the 21st century is um, a high science. Back then they were just throwing a whole lot of grapes on the ground and treading on them. So if we And some people believe they were non-alcoholic, by the way. Oh, they were definitely alcoholic. <laughs> oh, come on. That's not what some old old people, oh, <laughs> old, old generations say. Old generations. No, it was <laughs> yeah. absolutely alcoholic. There was no doubt about that. You, you'd have to be reading crazy stuff into the scripture to realise that 
to think that the Bible was talking about its wine not being alcoholic. That's not to say that, you know, it advocates for drinking too much wine and drinking in excess. It does quite the opposite to that. But it was definitely alcoholic. And so when Jesus is using analogies like this, he is really, this whole gardener mentality, there's, there's uh, vintages all over the place, vineyards everywhere. And so they understood how grapes worked. They understood the importance of how to grow a vine. Things that he says there, pruning, he refers to verse 2, cutting off every branch. So he's under, they go, oh yeah, we know that. You cut off branches. That, if there's a branch that looks, some branches on, on a, a vineyard will actually look green and lush, but they don't produce any grapes. And if you're looking at it to an untrained eye, you'd think oh, that's a beautiful branch. But um, they cut those off because they're not producing fruit. And what they're actually doing is they're creating so much shade that it's not letting the sun onto the other branches. So they understood the fine art of pruning. And Jesus is saying, that's what it's like. If you're not going to be fruitful in me, you might get cut off. Yeah. So if you're not fruitful, you're going to get cut off. Are you sort of saying if you're not being obedient and not um, trusting in me, you're going to get cut off even though you believe in me? Uh, well, let's go back to what he just said in John 14. Immediately before this, he talked about being, uh, you know, uh, he, he, remain, uh, he talked about um, the, the whole concept of uh, obeying him, his commandments and, and loving him and, being, and, and living out of that. So I think Jesus is definitely saying that there is a, it should be a sobering passage is what I'm saying. If, if we're not fruitful, then it's, it, we will be cut off. But it's probably more that we've chosen to cut ourselves, to be cut off. Um, if we're not fruitful, there might be a separation that takes place. That's not what he's warning. That might be what he's warning here, but that's not what he's intending. What he's trying to do is urge people to be fruitful, stay connected to the vine. It's oh, an that's urge. Because then he says, and he who prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce, produce even, even more. more. Is this talking about times of testing? Testing, I think Times so. of trouble? Yeah, I think histo uh, church theologians have long thought that when it talks about pruning that it's linked to times of struggle times of test time well it makes sense in verse three saying to the disciples you've already been pruned and purified yes. by the message i have given you it's hard yep. to read and so they had been through times of testing yeah. but they were about to go through their biggest time, biggest of, time of, of testing, testing and trial and this is the easy time for them i think yes this is yeah that's it so he's, he's wanting the overarching principle here is they understand the vineyard terminology and he's saying, stay close to me. So uh, chapter, verse 4 there, John 15 verse 4, remain in me and I will remain in you. This is stay close. Pastor Mark Kelsey had a message years ago called We Should Be Romanians. <laughs> That's clever. <laughs> it's clever. What it means to be a Romanian. We remain in him. Yeah. Does it mean to be, does remain in him mean to be dependent on him? Yeah. I, well, is that what a Christian should be, dependent? Okay, so remember he's using language here of a vineyard. So to what degree do you think a branch, a grape fruit, a grape vine branch is dependent on the main vine? Well. Hmm. What does it get from the vine? It gets water. Water. And nutrients. Yep. And strength. Yep. And I don't, basically, basically everything, everything needs for life. Yeah. All right. Okay. You see where this is going? So Jesus, yep. it's, it's not rocket science. Even in that day, it wasn't rocket science. It's just simply saying, you know, if you chop a branch off, it's only a matter of time. It's going to lose the source of life. So stay, remain in him. Stay close to him. Do you think this would, be, would have been easier for the disciples to understand than, the ref, than him speaking about the Holy Spirit? Because this is clear. 
Yeah, yeah, I do. In that sense that this is much simpler language, something that they can preload up their understanding, whereas that stuff around the Holy Spirit in John 14 was quite cryptic, wasn't it? Yes. When I mean clear, I mean it's something known, something that they can see easily and relate to rather than this Holy Spirit. Yeah. Whatever that is, whatever that means. Which I do. Can we do a full podcast on that? Yes, let's let's do. Should a we full, do that? Yeah, considering that this series we're doing is on the Holy Spirit, and these I have a lot are, of questions. I think we should I just don't spend. Know if I have a lot of answers, but we'll <laughs> see how we go. Well, that you and me both, <laughs> we're in the right yeah, place. Yeah, I think it would be good to do a, a whole bonus episode just on that alone, rather than the, the chapters, so that we we have some understanding of what the Holy Spirit is about. I, I do not presume that in one episode we could even begin to even really scratch the surface, but let's have a crack. All right. So I will cross out Holy Spirit questions I have right here. And we'll bring them up. And I'll move to uh, in verse 8, when you produce much fruit. What is this fruit that Jesus is talking about? What does fruit look like in a Christian's life? What well, should it look like? J- j- well, in this case, um, I think they would have an understanding of fruitfulness that you could probably do a Google search and find out references to fruitfulness in the Old Testament. So I don't, haven't done that. I haven't got it in front of me, but that would be how I would do it. If I was doing a Bible study on this and I was trying to answer or address that question you just asked me, I'd go, okay, what are references in the Old Testament to fruitfulness? And I'd find those and then I'd study those. I would imagine that because of an agrarian society that they would understand that fruit is healthy, fruit is life, life-giving, fruit is sweet. So it's definitely painted in a positive light when it talks of fruit. Um, So that would be in their mind as they're listening to this. We also have the benefit of the Apostle Paul some 30, 40 years after this, probably less, probably 30 years after this, writing Galatians chapter 5 where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And in that context, Galatians 5.21, he says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Of these things, there's no law against these things. He's, so we understand fruitfulness to be what it looks like as a Christian is to exude those characteristics in our life. Does it also mean to be at peace and be joyful when we may not feel like Yep. We should be joyful or we have nothing in our lives to be joyful over. Love, joy. Oh, yeah, all right. Okay. Peace. Love, you just joy, mentioned peace. two of them right Yes, there. I yep. did. So actually yep. we're talking love, joy, peace. Those three, are, he's dealing with love here and you just asked about joy and peace. So yes, they are uh, effects, fruits. They are um, e- expressions of a life that is remaining in the vine, is connected to the spirit source. There's lots of metaphors being mixed in together here. But yes, that's definitely the fruit of a of a person who's close to God would be love, joy, peace, and so on. Sometimes when I think about the disciples listening to all this, I have to have I have a little quiet smile because they were wanting this Messiah to be this, you know, warrior, yeah, victorious, uh, king. victorious king coming in, taking her back yeah. Jerusalem and things, and kicking out the Romans. Yeah. But here he is speaking of love. Joy, peace. In fact, love your enemy. Love yep, those Roman right. overlords. Upside down kingdom. Love them. Take, go the extra mile. Walk what a the extra shock. Mile. Totally. And that's but, why a lot of them rejected him. That's right. Mm. And they didn't understand. Yep. No, they didn't understand. Because God's ways are not our ways. Yep. You got it. All right. I, oh, dear. Now I'm confused again. Where I had a good question, but you threw me on that one. 
So let me just think, where am I? I'll look down my notes. Oh, it says to me here, read verses 18 to 23. So read verses 18 to 23, sure. Oh, this is interesting because if the world, this is still Jesus talking Mm -hmm. and Jesus has just told them to love each other, right? Um, Oh, no, I need to go back and make a point because talking about the fruits here, then Jesus goes on to describe the love again. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Wait. Let's read that again. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Does God love us the same way as he loves Jesus? Was there a difference? Because then later on he sort of he says he basically says I've lost the verse now. Am I making sense, Rowan? I think he he might be saying is the love that the Father has for us the same as he has for the Son? I would yeah. say, yeah. I would say Jesus demonstrates that. As I have loved you, go and love one another. He, he has shown us the Father. We read that. He said to, to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I think if we can look at Jesus and see his relationship with his Father and realize why he sent his Son, John three sixteen. we're spending a lot of time in John. God so loved the world, me, you, that he sent his Son. So he loved his son and he loved us so much that he was willing to send his son for us. So his love for us has no bounds. I think that. I guess the reason I ask, does God love us the same, is because we are going to talk about the Old Testament. We're going to see a different sort of way of living. But if God loves us the same, why didn't it sort of necessarily look the same back then? That's a bigger question. Yeah. And I just want to point out that it, when you do read the Bible, you do think, did God change his love uh-huh, from yes. Old Testament to New Testament? And that's a, a common uh, perspective is that how can this God that we see being a God of judgment in the Old Testament, like in Judges where we're going to go in a few minutes, yeah. how do we see that contrasted against the God who says, turn the other cheek, the God who says, love your neighbor as yourself, love your enemy that they don't seem to match up. And so a lot of people, a lot of liberal scholars will go, that's not the same thing. Um, So is that what you're kind of getting at? Yeah, that is what, in a roundabout way, that is what I'm getting to. So this, again, would have been a shock to them because they do, they know this God to be judgmental or have seen him be judgmental. Uh, Is that even the right way to say that? Yeah, I guess they have seen him play out in in judgment against his enemies, against... those who persecute them and they that's what they probably had a belief that God would do that, definitely. Mm. We'll read some of that language yeah. in, in a they little bit. They definitely had a sense that God was a just and merciful God as well um, because Jonah, at the end of his story, the reason when you read his poem where he goes to the Ninevites and tells them to repent and then he goes outside and he complains because he this, is, this is why I didn't want to come here because I know you're a merciful God and they don't deserve to, your mercy. So they had some sense of the mercy of God. But they didn't quite understand God's love. But here Jesus goes on to explain God's love, yep. I think, where he says there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Yeah. yeah. They don't know it yet, but they, this is Jesus is about to lay down his life. Yep. And we're going to have a real example, the only example, the true example of what that love looks like. Yes, the greatest the, example. I the suppose. greatest example. Yeah. There are other examples, but, but, but Jesus' death on our behalf is far and above the greatest example of love. Mm. 
that was the point I was trying to get to. Did I get there? I, I don't think know. you got if, there. If you're listening yep. to this and that doesn't make sense, make a note. Jeannie, just, I don't know, <laughs> no, say something. That sounds good. You got there. <laughs> All right. So now I will go to back to read 18 to 23 because this came up in a uh, Bible study that I had with some friends the other day. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world so it hates you. The first question here is, I chose you to come out of the world. Now, a lot of people think, oh, are some Christians chosen or not chosen? But I just want to make the point, which I went and studied, that maybe I'm wrong on this, Rowan, you can correct me. I don't know if I'm right either, so we'll wait and see what you say. <laughs> yeah, where's she going? Uh, but in the olden days, um, disciples would choose their teacher. Right. But Jesus is choosing his disciples. Jesus handpicked all of those people to follow him. So is this more a line about, hey, I chose you in difference to other teachers and less a line about predestination? Oh, (laughs) I haven't thought about that, but I reckon that could be, that's a good way to bring it back to it. Maybe it's not as doctrinally um, heavy as maybe we make out it is, where it's, it's just talking about, hey, remember when I chose you guys and I walked around and chose you? It could be that. That makes sense. And I have heard what you, that story you said about that. I don't know for certain that I've ever studied it to know the process of how a rabbi would or a disciple would choose a rabbi. I do know that disciples, only, only the most um, intelligent uh, young boys who, you know, had been, who were at the highest level of knowing the Torah and reciting the Torah would be considered worthy of being discipleship. It was the ultimate goal for every Jewish boy that they would be able to be a disciple of a rabbi. Most didn't achieve it. It was a very small portion. The rest would just go off back to their trade. And the assumption is that these guys were never at that level because they, they weren't disciples of a rabbi. They'd gone back to their trade and Jesus went around and picked them up and said, hey, I'm going to choose you. Come with me. So, yeah, I think... They, it's true that Jesus selected them, and that might be what he's saying here. Yeah, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense to me, Jeannie. We had a lot of conversation around that. Yeah, in this group. Yeah. Okay. And then also uh, when the idea of being persecuted, people are wondering these days: Are we being persecuted more than we weren't? At which to my an- more than we were. Which to my answer is, we're not being killed. Some countries are being killed, but. Do you have any comment on that? <laughs> uh, I think that for for us to uh, for us in the West, for most of us in the West to um, be crying that we are deeply persecuted shows um, a lack of understanding of history and geography. Because I like to say most people throughout most of the world, throughout most of history, have had it far worse than we have. Um, that's not to say that you know Christians are loved. And deeply respected in the West, maybe that we don't hold the same place of respect that we once did, but it's a far cry from the level of persecution that most people throughout most of history, throughout most of the world have been through. And is it implying there that even though we may be persecuted as we feel it, um, we are to live sort of in an atmosphere where we're unaffected by what people are saying about us? Which is probably moving away from the scripture and more into a sociological or even a socio-political perspective. But I think, and don't hear me, I don't, I don't, I don't deeply 
get excited about the concept of persecution. It's not Why like not? I'm going out <laughs> seeking persecution. But there's part of me at the same time that Jesus is saying, look, persecution is natural. They will naturally persecute you. If, you, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. There's going to be a sense in which if you're a follower of Jesus, you will be persecuted. And it's into that context that the Christian, the first century Christians came and did their greatest work and turned the world upside down. So I have to wonder whether or not a refined church that remains in Jesus, stays close to him, stays close to the vine, whether or not um, as the darkness of the world increases, the light abounds more. And so there's a sense of me that's a bit excited about that because there's no room for lukewarm Christianity when you're persecuted. And I think the church could, the church could be potentially entering into its, into its lightest time in the West in hundreds of years if the, if the darkness around us is rising. We should embrace that, uh, not, or, or not, we shouldn't embrace it, we should accept that and pray into that. And to be spending our time crying out about, oh, the world doesn't listen to us anymore and we're, being, we're coming under persecution. I just wonder what people in third world nations that are facing high level Islamic extremist persecution would say about that. I, I wonder what uh, African-Americans would say about that who you know, face persecution and, and slavery. I just think it's kind of, it's kind of naive at best, arrogant, <laughs> even at worst. Should we have a, another podcast about this? We did, actually. I did a podcast called <laughs> Christians you? in Culture. Oh, okay. Well, go Check listen to Christians that. Check out my Christians in Culture podcast. I deal more with that. a lot of that kind of stuff in that podcast, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose what, what we've just been reading now, we're just deeply encouraged to love our enemy and to have joy and peace in our hearts. Yeah. And to continue on abiding and uh, depending. Yep. Yeah, staying close. Yep, definitely. So that's the quick answer to that. Which wasn't that which quick. wasn't that quick. <laughs> uh, one more point on this chapter, which this is such a big chapter, uh, where in 22, Jesus says, they would not be guilty, this is the world, not be guilty if I had not come and spoken to them, but now they have, their no, have no excuse for their sin. Does this mean sin is a rejection of Christ? Yeah, I guess it does in this context is that... They're not guilty because Christ wasn't here. Now Christ has come. Yeah. They reject him and the sin is the rejection of the Christ. Um, yeah, of I, the I Christ, Christ. I think while that's true, I don't know. I'd say that point you made would not be the sum total of what sin is. So to say sin is the rejection of Christ, I would go rejection of Christ is sin but not that all sin is a rejection of, or is limited to rejecting Christ. There are other things that, that people can do um, in their world that are beyond that, that are still sinful, things that still don't benefit human flourishing. Um, okay, I have a lot to say about that. So yeah. I'm going to come back to that because yeah. I have um, written, oh, not written, read a bit about this. Okay. And yeah. I'm going to take you on in previous chapters in previous chapters. Uh, but earlier, you, later chapters. Later chapters. Okay, take me <laughs> yeah. on. I'm up for it because I, I don't, never really thought about that. So that's good. This is what we do this podcast. We right. have conversations and allow people to challenge one another and think outside the box. And so after all this, Jesus says, the world's hate, hated you, uh, hates me, so it'll hate you. And then 26, we, f we end with this lovely verse, but I will send the advocate, the, f the spirit of truth. He will come to you from the Father and will testify all about me. 
Thank goodness for the spirit. Oh, yes. This is That's the spirit. Yep. Yeah. Yes. And then we also have to testify about him. But it's nice that he goes through this awful little passage and then says, hey, but, but there is someone coming that's heart. going to help you. That's right. I'm going to be with you and I'm going to say, I will be, I will send you the advocate. Yep. The advocate. All right. So let's move on uh, to a different chapter. We will, sure. we'll do that podcast on the Holy Spirit. Yep. So we're going to go, we're going to skip back in skip. time, hundreds of years, and we're going to the book of Judges. We're going to go, we're going to skip back in skip. time, hundreds of years, and we're going to the book of Judges. Judges, so we're skipping back like skipping back. 1300 years. Bear that in mind, Thir- everyone. 13, we're about to go 1300 back. years. So, this is before King David. This is after Moses, after Joshua, before King David, where Israel is in the promised land. Yep. Correct? Yep. yep. And it's sort of under leadership or rule by a bunch of judges each tribe is living by itself and they have a judge presumably in each tribe uh i think that the judges were probably ruling i think that the judge was probably more national they they did have some sense of national identity but within tribal boundaries so i guess at times there were judges that were ruling over one particular tribe but i think there are definitely instances where the judge might have been uh leading the association of tribes, if you like. It's not a kingdom. It's an association of tribes. So Jenny just dropped a note. I just dropped my notes. That's all gone out the window. (laughs) So there's there's all the 12 tribes here and they're living separately but next to each other. And that's good to point out because the tribes do come into this story. Yes, they do. And this is where we have a woman as a judge. Her name is Deborah. 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 And she's also described as a prophetess. And I'll just read bits of it. I won't tell you the verses, but you can carry. You can, you can read whatever. <laughs> Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under a tree and people would come to her for her judgment. One day she sent for Barak, not the president. We should state that. Uh, yeah, not no, the <laughs> should clear that out. Yeah. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord God of Israel commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army. We should state Sisera is the occupying force. Right, he's the leader of the army of the oppressors of the. I these think Jabin tribes. is probably the leader, and Sisera is the commander. It says there. So oh, Sisera is the Sisera, yeah. Sisera is like the the general of the army, and the army belongs to Jabin. So Jabin must be the king. I'm assuming that's how I read that. All right, good. But point. yes, you're on the right. It's an oppressive army. It's an oppressive army. Who is, yeah, who is basically um, controlling them, oppressing them? And God says through Deborah that uh, when you call out. Get Barak to me and uh, I will tell him, there I will give you victory over him, being Sisera. And Barak's response is, to Deborah, I will go, but only if you go with me. He doesn't say if God will go with you, if you will go with me. What a courageous man he is. He's full of courage. Full of courage. (laughs) She replies very well, I will go with you, but... There will be consequences. There will be consequences, but you will receive no honour in this victory, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of... 
a woman. What the heck? A woman? So they go into this big battle and uh, it is true they defeat the army. Correct? Yep. Yes. Yep. And Sisera, he runs away. He runs into the, into the desert and he comes to a woman's tent. And he goes into this woman's tent. And we should state right here, by going into that woman's tent, he basically commits her to death. Yes, At least it, would that's what very, we, it would be very suspicious. Very suspicious, yes. yeah. So desert law being at this time, we, yep. we think that she would have been killed because this looks very bad. It looks very inappropriate. Very inappropriate, yeah. very yep. bad. And he goes in and he asks her for water. Yep. And she gives him milk. It's also desert people were meant to be hospitable. Oh, extri- ex- I suppose. still are to this day. The nomads and the Bedouins are incredibly hospitable. Yes. yes. Part of the culture. When you're in desert, and not much water around. Not much water. Deeply built into their culture. So she looks, takes care of his needs, but she knows who he is. And she knows if he wins this battle, uh, bad things will happen yep. to her people. So when he falls asleep, she takes a tent peg and... Trigger warning here. It's extremely violent. It's very violent. <laughs> she rams the nail or the peg straight into his brain. Through his brain into Threw the ground. Through his brain into the ground. Wow, it's so descriptive, this old it book, is, the Bible. It? Yes, it certainly is. <laughs> this is why a lot of people go, I can't have my children reading that. This is, totally yes. I totally get that. If, the, if you're not troubled by these stories, then you've become desensitized. It's it's a horrible time. This period of the judges is a is a tragic time in the nation of Israel. They've deeply lost their way. They had lost their way, yes, and they had all these occupying forces. But this woman, she was named uh, the, the mur- not the murderer, the killer. I shouldn't even say killer. God's appointed person to destroy this man's life. I guess <laughs> you could say that. To bring judgment To bring judgment, yes. This man's life, yes. Her name was J.L. Yes. And she is is called, funnily enough, she's called Blessed Among Women in a song in, in the next in chapter. Judges 5, yeah. In Judges 5, which did you know the only other woman to be called Blessed Among Women in the Bible is Mary. Mary. Yes, the mother Mary. So she's a hero. Yeah. She and Deborah, the prophetess, are heroes. Yeah. That's extraordinary, right? It, 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 in its historical context, I think it is extraordinary. We're dealing with a... A, a very much a patriarchal society, and uh, here is here is two chapters that's really highlighting women breaking free from the constraints of of what would be traditional patriarchal society, as if to say God's saying He can work through through women too. <laughs> exactly, in whatever context it is, there's definitely that's the that's the pervading message that the Spirit wants us to get. That's the pervading message that the authors want us to get. Is that God can work through women as well. But, and what JL did at this time, which you don't really think about when you read it because you're in, in shock and horror. You think, how could this be in the Bible? But we need to realize what would have happened to the women of her time had Sisera come and, and taken, conquered all these people. All the women, all the girls would have been taken off yeah. and abused in multiple ways. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and very often you would see that and the Jews weren't exempt from doing that either. This is why the book of Judges is so terrible because they're so messed up on that. But yeah, women were, were treated very poorly. They were, they were made into slaves and, and uh, all kinds of perverted behaviours forced upon them. That was very much 
the culture of ancient times. In fact, right through the Middle Ages as well, it was very common as well. And if you go and read in the next chapter, which we will in our next podcast, so we won't get too much into it now, but it actually does describe what these girls and women would go through. So it was known at that time. Yeah. Uh, we do need to have to think about the culture when we read this, think about the times because I read it and I was like, what kind of woman would do this? Yeah. I could never ram a tent peg through someone's no, head. No. I would, however, in my circumstance, if somebody came into my house, some crazy man came into my house, I would probably offer him a drink. I would probably say sit down and relax and then I would go and call the cops. Call the police. <laughs> so, so, so there's an interesting thing. What are you trying to do in that situation? You're trying to bring about justice yes. against the wrong. Yes, that's so how they brought it. This is how I would bring that's it. That's the point. So when we read the violence of the book of Judges, and look, scholars have debated about how to approach the book of Judges, but we're going to spend some time in it. So it's worth noting that uh, there are various different views, but one one view that kind of does make sense is that you know, because we're limited to that was their understanding at the time, and uh, you know, did God order Deborah to annihilate an army? Did God order the Joshua to completely obliterate all of the tribes, all of the Canaanites, and so on? There's one school of thought that says that you've got to realise that human behaviour left to its own course is incredibly destructive, and so. While if, if that's the case and you see God's actions through the, through the Joshua and then in this story, for instance, as being a sign of judgment, it's, it might seem cruel, but the level of human cruelty would be actually far less than had the natural byproduct of Sisera and, and Jabin and all these others been allowed to continue for any period of time. At the time of the book of Joshua, when they come into the promised land, uh, they had to wait until the, it says the sin of the Amorites had reached a full level. But it was it come to this point where God said, this is not redeemable. And if I do not bring judgment upon this and consequences upon this, the outplay of letting this run its course will actually be far worse for, for humanity than me bringing the judgment. And that helps me. I don't, I don't presume to say that's an easy one size fits all answer to deal with the book of, books of Joshua and Judges. But I can reconcile that to some degree. In my own mind, I don't know what you think. No, I understand what you're saying. And I sort of, I think the same. I do. Yeah. And one question I have, just based on that, is is this chapter here more about uh, Jewish history or God moving at this moment? More about Jewish history or God moving? God moving, like the Holy Spirit moving and asking JL to do this. Which you sort of just sort of, alluded well, to the answer anyway well, yeah i think i think there's no doubt that as as it's written it seems to me that they believed that deborah had had a prophetic word from the lord to do this and so if we read this black and white we'd have to read that at a black and white level and you'd have to say well god told deborah to go and kill jabin's army it would seem to say that and this is why i think there's a nuance that we wrestle with because in one sense if we take that literally we then have to wrestle with well, well what kind of god would do that kind of God, and there might be answers for that we have to, or is this just a different god to the god of the new testament revealed in jesus that would say love your enemies how can you love your enemies by bringing judgment on your enemies it's kind of where you're going with the question i think it's worth wrestling with but i think i would see it as um i'm i'm not threatened even, even though i think that it i fits with what i just said that this could have been god bringing judgment to prevent further inhumanity and the decay of humanity, 
it also, I'm also not completely confused by or upset by the possibility that God was once again working within the limited understanding of those people. And so um, sometimes in the Old Testament, there might be things that they believed God was speaking to them about, which they probably heard something from the Spirit or inspired something from the Spirit, but that does not remove the human factor or the human understanding. Uh, that God still works with that. God still worked with Abraham and Sarah even though they thought it was acceptable to take their slave women and impregnate their slave women. And uh, that clearly wasn't right, but God still works within those limited boundaries, even though they believed they were doing the right thing. Uh, I think in hindsight, we would go, well, no, they weren't doing the right thing because they were enslaving a woman. But God still works with our limits, limitations and our understandings. That should help me to remember, I wonder what limitations and misunderstandings I still have. Yeah. <laughs> And thank goodness we have the Holy Spirit because, because I think these stories, well, in my own life, it's like you, you do things until you know that you shouldn't do those things, right. until it's revealed to you that, hey, that's not the best way yeah. to act around yeah. this person. That's yeah. not your best response. Yeah. And we're all just, you know, a work in progress. And that's what, when you mentioned Abraham, uh, there's so many tests that he goes through yeah. and his faith grows. Yep. Yes, uh, it does. Yeah, yeah, and that's what uh, we need. This Holy Spirit one is coming. We, yeah, the Holy yeah. Spirit <laughs> podcast. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think pressure on me, Jean. Yeah. Do you have anything more to say about these chapters? No, I think that covers it. If you've got all the questions that you wanted to ask, done. Yeah, I'm happy with that. I do. Yeah. So uh, thanks so much to Rowan for sitting down and allowing me to ask these qu questions. Oh, it's a long one. <laughs> We're trying to work on getting them quicker, but um, we'll get there. But we'll, we'll have to there. go chapter by chapter and really just have one question a chapter, I think. But we'll see how we go. Yeah. But I hope that and stick we both, yeah, stick with us. We hope this is a blessing to you and uh, enjoy the readings. And we'll uh, look forward to doing the next one for you. So thanks again. We are. What's the name of our our podcast again? The Bible. Wait, what? He couldn't have said it better. All right, God bless you. Have a great week. See ya. <laughs>